Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And I'll explain to you why I don't understand as well. Not that, not that I just don't get it, but let's just read. Especially this first verse. Nobody knows what this means. Um, and that's, that's not a joke. Verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, uh, intensely white, and no one on earth could, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared with them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is so good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and then one for Moses, and then one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for he, they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us clarity into this text, even maybe supernaturally right now as we're reading this or as we're, uh, as we're learning about this text, I, I pray that you would speak to us, that you'd speak to hearts that are doubting, hearts that are um, um, a bit confused, but more importantly, I pray that you would, you would today uh, manifest your presence here. I know there are many people, and I am one of these people, and I, and I was seriously one of these people that have so many questions. And I know, Lord, that at times your presence can answer questions that, that don't really have direct answers to. Just your nearness, just your presence answers them. And so I pray that just like what happened here on this mountain, that you would do that even this morning. That in worship, as we worship you now in, in studying and learning from um, the Bible and as we worship you in song, that you would bring clarity to parts of our lives that are just so unclear and so broken and so messed up, that you would bring clarity. I pray that you would anoint me this morning and use me. I need your help. We love you and we thank you. We turn to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been in the book of Mark now for, um, for uh, quite a while, and we have just come to the middle point of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 8 is like the dividing point in the book of Mark. The first half of the book of Mark is all about Jesus, and specifically about Jesus' nature, his, 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 his character, who he is, and, and it's told by all these things that he does. He, he talks with tax collectors and sinners and touches the untouchable. He heals. He walks on water. He does all of these amazing and crazy things, even raising a little girl from the dead, all of these crazy things, and it's all about the nature of Jesus, who Jesus is, but then it turns, and the second half is all about his mission. Now he's going to the cross. And there's this, this saying that happens in Mark chapter 8 where it says that now he was on the way, on the way. And that keeps on going from Mark chapter 8 on to the end. The, the way that Jesus is going is to the cross. 
And there's even this point in um, the book of Mark at the, the second half of Mark where Mark uh, records a blind man who begins, who he, gets healed by Jesus and then follows Jesus on the way. And this, this point in Mark is like all about what book, the book of Mark is. People that are blind, that don't really see Jesus, are healed of their blindness and then follow Jesus on the way. So this following Jesus and, and knowing Jesus, his mission and his, and his nature is what the book of Mark is about. But here when you come to chapter 9, like I said before, this, this passage still uh, confuses me a little bit. Because how do you reconcile Jesus' humanity with Jesus' divinity? What I've loved about the book of Mark, it's all about Jesus' humanity and how approachable Jesus is and how amazing he is and what he does. But then how do you, how do you reconcile his, his extreme humanity with his extreme divinity? His humanity is extremely a bit, maybe too normal, too, too normal to be worthy of being divine. I was talking to a family member this last week over Thanksgiving, and, and I was just sharing with them about Jesus. And, and then I mentioned, you know, Jesus didn't even start his ministry until he was 30, and then this family member was like, wait, what? He didn't start ministry until he was 30? Like, what did he do for 30 years? Like, he was normal. He, like, had a normal job. He was just normal, and then he began his ministry. I mean, you get a little glimpse of what he was doing when he was 12, but that's it. It's all, and, and, and this, this was, like, I never knew, not that I, like, studied the Bible, but I never, ever knew that. Like, Jesus is so normal that he's almost not even worthy in our minds to be divine. He's normal in his humanity and being even tempted and without sin. Showed his compassion through his humanity. His humanity caused him to be sad and mad. He befriended prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. But in his divinity, he was God in flesh. The glory of God in bodily form. In Mark's gospel, it's all about the serving and the suffering Messiah. But here in Mark chapter 9, we get a glimpse into his glorious divinity. We get a special revelation into the eternal Son of God, but why is it here? I even hate asking that, even, that question because I don't necessarily know. Why is this here? I mean, you get his humanity and what he does, but then you get this shimmering, like, he becomes this glowing, radiant, beautiful being on top of this mountain, just for a moment. But what does this even do? This doesn't really give the disciples, it doesn't heal the disciples' doubt because they will still deny him. This doesn't heal their doubt because when he goes to the cross, they're still a bit clueless. I mean, if we just skip this section, which I was very tempted to do, I don't think a lot of us would miss it. If we just moved over and we're like, oh, that happened, okay, let's move on. What happened on this mountain that was so important to the story of Mark? Why did it happen, and what does it really mean? What do we learn from it? Let's attempt to tackle some of these things. In Mark's gospel, which throughout Mark's gospel, it subverts this whole idea of power. That's kind of how Mark writes his, his, um, his book to basically a, a, the Roman Empire. The greater the revelation about Jesus, the smaller the number of people who witness it. The greater the revelation, the smaller the number of people who witness it. So there's only three people, Peter, James, and John. Jesus is like inner circle. They go up to the mountain with Jesus, and the disciples, what the disciples see absolutely shocks them, and Peter wants to build them a tabernacle. That's weird. They're all up there. Jesus is glowing. Moses is there. Elijah is there, and Peter, because he doesn't know what to say, like, can I build you a house? 
I'll build you all a house right now. Just wait a minute. I'm going to go get my stuff. You're getting a house. You're going to get a house. And you're going to get a house. This is going to be cool. And this is what he wants to do. He wants to build them a, a, a tabernacle. I mean, there was something here. And I don't know if you've ever sensed this before. This moment that you wanted to capture forever with God. Where you, you've sensed on this earth a nearness of God that you've never, ever sensed before. Like he was your best friend and there wasn't this vast chasm between you and him. This is what this was. And they wanted to bottle it. They wanted to keep it forever. One of the most amazing times I've ever experienced in my own life of great intimacy with Jesus, I wanted to save those times forever. But I found out in my own life those also come in the midst of great suffering. So I kind of don't want to save those times. But Peter, James, and John here are, are so baffled by what they see, so intimate with God. They see Jesus for who he really is. They want to keep it forever. They want to save it. They're like, let's just stay here. Let's not go back down. Let's stay here forever and take this all in. And especially if you're an observant Jew, this was like being backstage or rather even on stage with your favorite band. What was going on on top of the Mount of Transfiguration was very familiar to the most vivid event in the Old Testament. The glory of God on top of Mount Sinai during the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 33, God comes down on top of Mount Sinai. There's this cloud. God speaks. Moses goes on top of the mountain. He asks to see God's glory on top of the mountain. Even though Moses can't see God's face, just being in the very presence of God, Moses starts to glow. So he comes down. It's not like a suntan either. This is like glowing, okay? He's glowing. He has to put a veil on. He's glowing so much. He comes down and he's glowing. Now, here in Mark 9, there's another mountain. Jesus takes his disciples to the top of this mountain. Jesus starts to glow. His clothes start to glow. Heavenly glory. I love how Mark writes, and nobody can bleach Jesus' clothes this white. I mean, they were so white. You couldn't clean them like this, okay? I'm just telling you right now. Like, I love that little bit of commentary in there, okay? This is no earthly white. This is no earthly. You can't get your clothes this white. They were glowing. They were that white, so you have this glow. He's transfigured before them. The Greek word is metamorphosis. That's kind of what it's translated into. Jesus changes. Now, Jesus' nature didn't change. His outer appearance changed to match his inward nature. That's the only thing that changed. He was showing who he really was inside, his real true nature as being divine, holy, the glory of God. And there was even a, a cloud on top of the mountain again. Moses is back, and he brings a friend, Elijah, and the voice from the cloud, God speaks, this is my son, listen to him. I mean, this is so amazing, it's almost comical to even be up there with, Mo with Moses and Elijah and glowing Jesus, and the father speaking from a cloud, and they wanted to keep this forever. Mark even adds that Peter was afraid, and he opened his, instead of saying nothing, which would probably be the smart thing to do, he just opens his mouth and says the dumbest thing. Now, we have to set this amazing mountaintop experience in the context of the two valleys that surround it, okay? The way that Mark writes a story, and we've been talking about this from the very beginning, the way that Mark writes a story, he sets the context up very uh, particularly. He writes in a, in a way that you're supposed to get the surrounding context. So we have to look at this, when we look at this mountain, we have to look at both valleys. Before he goes up to the mountain, there is a valley, and then when he gets off the mountain, there is another valley. 
Remember what just happened six days prior to this mountaintop experience. Mark puts this in context. They're walking to Caesarea Philippi. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, which is correct in name. He is the Christ, but he doesn't have it correct in content. He doesn't know what that means yet. Peter says, yes, you are the Christ, but he has no idea what that means because right after Jesus said, yes, I am the Christ, and he says, I must suffer, be rejected, and killed. And this is where Peter rebukes Jesus, and he reminds him, Christs don't suffer. They win. They triumph over their enemies. With brute force and the favor of God, they win. Jesus, I've seen what you're capable of doing. You're really good at things, and you're really good at, like, miracles as well. You can crush Rome. You can do this. Don't talk like that anymore, Jesus. Let's, let's carry on. And then Jesus, his famous rebuke back to Peter. Okay, Satan, get behind me. Because you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Which is always a very satanic venture when you start to set your mind on the things of man. When you look at God through your own eyes. When you look at God's plans or even your own life through your own eyes instead of God's perspective. It's a very satanic and confusing venture. And then, the most radical statement to ever come out of Jesus' mouth, and we talked about this last week, Jesus says, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I mean, this is very, very heavy. They are expecting, what they are expecting from Jesus, and what they get here in Caesarea Philippi are, couldn't be more antithetical. They're expecting a triumphant king, a warrior to roll into Rome and tear everybody up, and what they get is someone who says, I am going to suffer, be rejected, and then die, and you have to take up your cross and follow me to your own deaths as well. That was a very humbling, they're like, who are you? What kind of king is this? A king going to a cross, failing in your mission, failing in restoring the kingdom? This is no king. That's one side of the mountain. That's valley one. That's how they were going into the mountain. Then they go through the mountain, and then they, when they come off the mountain, when they get off the mountain, and we're not going to talk about this this week, but when they get off the mountain, as soon as they do, they're met by an, a great arguing crowd. Look at verse Look at verse 14. It says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. And they asked Jesus, what are you, what are you, and Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So they get off the mountain, and they're met with as soon as they, they, they're met with an arguing crowd, a demonic boy fully manifesting, foaming at the mouth, and the other disciples are arguing about it. They're foaming, and disciples are like, I, I, we tried to do everything that, we, we, that you gave us power to do, 
and the scribes are like, why can't they cast the demon out? And the dad is like flipping out, and the boy is fully convulsing on the ground. This is what they come back, back down from. It's like probably the holidays at your family's house or something like that. So they're on this wonderful mountaintop experience. They come down, and they, they're met with demonic opposition. They're met with argumentative uh, crowd. They're met with the disciples that have no idea what's going on. That's the other side. One side of the mountain shattered hopes of what following Jesus meant, and the uh, other side of the mountain not being able to accomplish what they thought we had the power to accomplish. On one side, they're like, who are you, even Jesus? Who are you? On the other side, disciples that were left behind were like, I thought you gave us power to cast out demons. I thought you gave us authority. What happened to, it ran out, we need more. And in the middle, we have the transfiguration. And why I think the transfiguration is so important is because we get clarity and reality from the transfiguration. We get clarity and reality. First of all, clarity. This might look like Mount Sinai, but it's not. Because on Mount Sinai, the glory of God was in the cloud, and when Moses came off the mountain, he reflected the glory of God. But here, Jesus is the glory of God. He's the source of the glory of God. He produces the glory of God. He doesn't point to the glory of God the way Moses and Elijah pointed to the glory of God. That's why Moses and Elijah are there. They both anticipate Jesus. They both really point to Jesus. All the prophets in the Old Testament testify to Jesus. Jesus is the culmination of everything hoped for and everything promised in the Old Testament. And for a moment, the disciples doubted it. They doubted. And why did they doubt? Because Jesus said, I'm going to a cross, and that can't happen. He can't be the one we've been waiting for if he dies. A crucified dead Messiah is no good for us. The Christ doesn't go to a Roman cross. And here Jesus takes them to the mountain to give them clarity, to show them who he is in all of his glory, and to teach them that suffering and glory are inseparable. Suffering and glory are inseparable. This is the lesson that the rest of the book of Mark teaches us. Suffering and glory, you can't separate these two. Suffering of Jesus is not incompatible with his glory. It's actually a part of his glory. And this is what Jesus is teaching them. And I don't really think, to be quite honest, I don't really think we get this. See, I know many of us know the verse. Many of us who grew up maybe in or around church know the verse, take up your cross. Or we know the statement, take up your cross. But we don't really know what it means. And the disciples didn't either. We are fairly successful Many of us are very educated, we're comfortable, we're sufficient, especially those of us under the age of 50, we don't have a theology, a framework for suffering. We don't like to suffer. By and large, we don't know how to suffer. Our immediate thought when we suffer is, how do I reverse what I'm feeling right now? See, when you and I suffer, no matter how you suffer, if it, you suffer because of something you've done or something that was done to you, we don't really know how to suffer. And when we suffer, the first thing that we think is, how do I reverse what I'm feeling right now? That's why when we suffer, we immediately want to comfort ourselves with food and money and sex and entertainment 
and coffee and whiskey and shopping and antidepressants. Are those bad things, all those bad things? No, but when we lean on them as our hope, when we lean on them as our deliverer, when we say, save me, we don't know how to really suffer because we love comfort, we love winning, we love triumph, and when it doesn't happen, it kills us. Even the disciples had this idea of triumphalism. They thought that Jesus would go into Rome. They thought that Jesus would bring triumph. Now, let me give you a, dif- a, a dictionary definition of triumphalism. Triumphalism, this is what they thought would happen with Jesus as they followed Jesus. All of them did. Triumphalism is the attitude or practices of a church that seeks a position of power and dominance in the world. They thought that Jesus would be the dominating power to take over the world. And what Jesus had to do was reinterpret what triumphalism meant. And the way that Jesus was going to win was not by going to a throne, but by going to a cross. And I think we as well understand Jesus in name, but not in content like Peter did. Because I think we're all triumphalists by nature. We all think we should win. All of us. We think we should get the job, get the girl, have the health, be the success story, win the game, get the press that we deserve, and that's how we triumph, and that's how we're happy, and that's how we know God loves us, and that's how we know we're not wasting our lives here, which shows us that we don't really understand Jesus. Because look at the two people who, who speak in this section and what they say. In this section, two people speak. Peter and God the Father, okay? These are the, the, the things that we know are said. And we know that Elijah and Moses and Jesus are talking, but Mark doesn't let us know what, what they talk about. The people who we do know talk are God the Father and Peter. Now, Peter says, let us build you guys a tabernacle. Everybody gets their own, one each. What he's saying is this, let's settle down in the security of this bliss and awesomeness on this mountain. Let's not ever leave this mountain ever and let's stay here forever. I'll build you a house, and you, let's just stay here. And God says, this is my son, listen to him. Now, I always took that to mean, Peter, shut up. <laughs> Whenever I read this, I'm like, I just hear God going, Peter, shut up. But God was saying, listen to him. Now, listen to whom? Jesus. But Jesus isn't saying anything here. What is the last most significant thing that Jesus did say? The son of man must suffer. What were they confused about? The Son of Man suffering. And God the Father saying, listen to him. The Son of Man must suffer. God the Father affirms that. Yes, he must suffer. The road to glory leads through the valley of suffering. So they're given this moment of clarity, a moment where it all makes sense. And this is where I think, in, my, in understanding this verse and studying it and whatever, I think the thing that the Lord wants to speak today, the thing that I, I, I've been hearing especially, is that God will give us these moments of clarity. God will give us these moments of clarity where things make sense, where our lives make sense, where we sense the presence and the nearness of God like never before. We will have these moments, but let me say this, these moments are not where we live. These moments are not where we set up a tent. 
These moments are not where we, now if you're confused right now, you're like, oh, I wish it was like it was two years ago. I had such clarity. Like you don't live there. You, we, you and I don't live in, in perfect clarity. You and I don't live where everything makes sense. You and I don't live where we understand the purposes of God and the plans of God perfectly, always. We don't live there. We visit there sometimes. And then we keep on moving through the valley of suffering. And this is how we know. Because Jesus didn't stay up there either. He could have stayed up there. This is who he was in nature. His nature was this glowing, perfect, beautiful being. He was God in flesh. He could have stayed up there as long as he wanted to. Actually, he probably could have left like that, but he didn't. Because I think the next thing that this teaches us is reality. Because the reality is we don't live on a mountaintop. We live in the city, quite literally, where things are busy and crazy and expensive and somewhat fragmented. That's exactly where Jesus calls us and leads us. I remember, I think about a year ago, I was talking with a gentleman who lives in Bakersfield, where I'm from, and he was saying, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to, to I'm moving to the mountains, and I cannot wait to move to the mountains. I'm going to get away from traffic and people and concrete and smog and lines and stores, and I can't wait to get into God's creation. I'm like, um, God's creation is humanity. And God loves people way more than he loves trees. And I know that some of you guys really love trees. <laughs> but Jesus didn't die for trees. He died for people. And the reality is he calls us to live in, if, if, you're, if you're like, I, this, where I live and my life is insane. And I need to live where everything makes sense and is clear. You will not find that anywhere. Jesus doesn't call us to do that. He's like, hey, you can visit the mountains. You can go up there and get clarity, but you, he calls us back down to where people are hurting. He calls us back down to where people are fully manifesting demonic things. He calls us where people are confused about God, confused about where they're at in life. That's what he does. But he brings us to the mountaintop at times to give us a glimpse of who he is, his glory, to refresh us. And then he sends us right back down. But he didn't just send us, he leads us. Because he goes down as well. He doesn't stay up there. He doesn't go, you know, this is nice. You know, I like this, Peter. I want a two-bedroom. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He goes, no, this is not, there is a cross. There is Jerusalem. And you guys must follow me down there. There's this reality at the end of the story the voice from heaven, after the voice from heaven, after God says, this is my son, this is what it says in verse eight. And suddenly, as soon as this is my son, listen to him, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I love that verse. Moses and Elijah are gone. The cloud's gone. That shining white garment is back to normal. And it's only Jesus. And he's going, let's go down to the valley. Only Jesus remains. Jesus turns from his own radiant glory to accompany them down the mountain on the way to Jerusalem to a cross. And I think the more 
the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, the greater we will be able to deal with the realities of suffering. The greater that we see Jesus in all of his reality, the greater that we see Jesus clearly, the way that we... The, the greater, to the greater degree that we see what he's done for us and how he loves us is how we'll deal with the reality of suffering and pain and brokenness. Um, at the very beginning of, of um, the message, I said, I also wanted you to turn to Psalm 73. So if you would, if you could turn there as well. I just want to read a couple of verses from here to give you this uh, type of perspective. This is a psalm that I, I, um, I meditate on fairly often because I find myself here a lot. And when I say here, I mean in a, in, in a bit of confusion at times. Psalm 73, look at, look at the way it starts. Let's read to verse five. It says, truly God is good. That's just like, so foundational, okay, to the psalmist. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, which was like a good thing then. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So this, this psalmist, like, he looked and he sees all these people who are wicked and, like, eat all this good food all the time, are sleek and, and fat, which is, you know, whatever. And all these things, and, and, and nothing ever comes against them. They have a perfect life. And the psalmist looks at them and is like, I serve God, and they get that, and I don't get any of that. I love God, and God's supposed to be good, and this is what I get, this life, that, they don't do, they, they hate God, and this is the life I get. Look at verse 16. And then that's what he does. He kind of goes on and talks about that. Verse 16, there's a but in there. But, when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, You set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Now, is he saying that, okay, I serve you, God, and you make all things bad happen to them and all things good? Obviously, he's not saying that because you just said they have everything great. What he's saying is this. When they go through suffering, when they go through the valley, they have no resource to suffer. All of their hope is wrapped up in their stuff. And when their stuff is gone, so is their hope. When their stuff is rocked, so are they. When their world shatters, because they built their life in this world, their world is gone as well. They have no resource for suffering. That's what he's saying. Because he went to the sanctuary of God. He realized that their end, their hope is in their things. And when their things are gone, or when suffering comes, they have no context to deal with it. And he says, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. He's repenting. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. He's saying, God, you never leave me. You never left me. Even though when I was going through suffering, you were always there. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. There are times when God, and I pray that this time, it might be even today for some of us, that God would give us extreme clarity into a situation, extreme peace about a situation, that he would pull us up to the mountaintop with him to show us his glory, and it might be for a minute, but can I say this as well? If you are in here and you're like, I just want to, I want God to answer me right now, and I want to experience him like I do, like I did like seven weeks ago, and it was awesome, but now it's getting a bit mundane. We don't live on those mountaintops. God brings us through suffering, and the greater that we see the reality of Jesus and who Jesus is, and that Jesus is bigger and greater reality than the reality of suffering, to that degree, we can go through suffering. To that degree, we can understand the valleys. To that degree, we can have clarity in the midst of the valley. We know that God is with us. See, because Jesus won on the cross, you and I don't have to fear losing ever again. We can actually lose. We can suffer. Because Christ gives us the framework to do that. But it's looking to Jesus. It's seeing him. And I want to pray right now that we would do that that we would see Jesus? If you've never, ever experienced Christ, that you would, um, that you would ask? That you would repent like the psalmist did? And go like, I kind of had my own perspective, my own way of seeing things, but I repent of the way I see things. I was brutish and <clears throat> mean and bitter, and I repent, and I want to see things your way. Because God has perfect clarity. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I pray that you would give us even clarity into our own situations. As we go into worship right now, I pray, God, that you would take us together. If you would be so gracious and so kind, Jesus, to take us to that place of worship, to that place where we see clearly and I pray our hearts, all of us, we know that when we leave this place, you go with us into the city. You go with us into the, into the problems, especially this time of year with all of these problems just in our face. Maybe someone's dealing with more family problems than we're, we're used to. And a living situation and roommates and jobs and careers and all of this stuff, Lord. All of it's daunting, all of it's confusing, all of it's heavy. I pray that the reality of Jesus would be a greater reality and a better reality. That you would meet us here and you would give us perfect clarity into who you are, into your nature. 
And we ask these things for your glory and in your name.